Hello, everyone. Welcome to Creation.Live. In each episode of this show, ICR scientists gather with subject matter experts, apologists, and other special guests to discuss pressing issues, whether that be ICR's current research, something new that's come to light in the scientific community, or something else entirely that ultimately impacts how science points to our creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope that each episode of this show is enlightening and encouraging in an increasingly chaotic world. I have with me today my co-host, Lauren. Hi. Uh, I'm, of course, Trey, and we also have with us uh, Dr. Scott Stripling and our very own Dr. Brian Thomas. Thank you all so much for being here today. Hey, thrilled to be here. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, Dr. Stripling, uh, can I call you Scott? (laughs) Call me Scott would be great. Okay, awesome. Scott, can you uh, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to discussing a a bunch of interesting things, and hopefully the audience will find it fascinating and helpful. Um, I grew up in this area, uh, Farmer's Branch, so this is kind of my old stomping grounds. And uh, probably if you would have asked the people that I was going to junior high and high school with, they would have not expected me to end up on the, the trajectory that I am. But um, my, my life changed pretty radically when I became a Bible reader as a teenager. And um, eventually that led to some frustration of trying to understand the background of the biblical text, like some things I struggled with understanding, like why was I struggling to understand them. Like the Bible talks about they busted through the roof at Capernaum and lowered their friend to Jesus. What did a roof look like? I mean, surely it didn't look like my roof. And so um, that kind of led me toward archaeology, and I began to consume voraciously the literature and eventually became involved in excavations, went back to school, earned a Ph.D. in ancient Near Eastern archaeology. And um, so I've had the privilege of excavating four sites in the land of the Bible and have my eye on another one before my career is over. So my passions are Bible and archaeology. I've been married for 40 years, have four kids, and as of tomorrow, I will have five grandchildren. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you again so much for being on this show. We are going to talk about your area of expertise, archaeology. Um, And so, I mean, pretend that I am just really, really dumb. Okay. Uh, what is archeology span and what do archeologists do? I think there may be some misconceptions, you know, uh, there's some, maybe some crossover mm. with some of the other sciences. So, yeah. Well, archeology span is a subscience of anthropology. So anthropology is the study of, of humankind or mankind and archeology span is the material culture that humans leave behind. And so different from paleontology, um, I'm asked that all the time, you know, so how many dinosaurs have I excavated? I said, well, so far, none. If we find dinosaurs in a human context, humans are probably going to be in their tummies, I guess. But uh, we're dealing with human remains, and ultimately we want to determine the leveling or what we call the stratification in an excavation. So we, we excavate thousands of loci, we analyze those loci, and then we assign each one to a stratum, and then ultimately we determine what our stratification is within the archaeological site so that we can use the ceramic material, anything like coins or glyptic remains, um, carbon remains, and other things that we're dating along the way to help us then correlate or synchronize, in many cases, the biblical text. But we use, of course, other texts if they're relevant from Egypt or Mesopotamia or whatever. But since we're excavating biblical sites, which is my area of expertise, like I really wouldn't know much about pottery from you know, the antebellum south or something like that. But uh, if you take me to that part of the world, I am an expert in, in that material culture. So we want to synchronize what we read in the text with what we find in the material culture. So that's my world. So what are some of the ways that you've seen that kind of synchronize, even just in your own experience? And I know, I believe most of your experience is in the Near East yes. over there. So what are some findings that you personally or your team have made that really seem to correlate really well with Scripture? There are, Lauren, believe it or not, a lot, like hundreds and hundreds of synchronisms. And so I've often said that I think a fair-minded person, if we could show them these synchronisms, and not just one or two or three or four, but hundreds of them, that a fair-minded person would have to say, it seems like we're dealing with a reliable historical document. Now, to your question, what are some that we have uh, uncovered? A lot. Um, we've excavated the site of Kerbet el 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Final publications just coming out. 
and uh, determined that that was biblical I, or AI of Joshua 7 and 8, and it was covered by a New Testament city called Ephraim of John 11:54, where Jesus spent the last month of his life before the triumphal entry. So when we're, we, it's kind of like our own laboratory, really, and it was unencumbered, nothing was built on top of it. So here we're able to study archeological theory in the classroom and then bring students and volunteers out, like into our field lab, really, and then excavate and see all these remains. Here's what the Bible says, like these 15 criteria that a site should have if it's I, for example, and then find those criteria, run them through what we call a criterial screen, and then ultimately say there's a gate on the north. Well, the Bible says that the gate of I was on the north of the site. That's where we found, found the gate. I mean, had it been on the west or the east or the south, then it would not have been I. Um, it was much smaller than Jericho. Had it been bigger than Jericho, then it would not have met that criteria. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of take those, you know, one by one, and we're what, what you would call a soft science. Um, we bring all the hard sciences to bear. So uh, today's archaeology is people might be shocked about just how high-tech it is. Low-tech on one hand, because we still need human beings in physical squares mm -hmm. doing work and making, um, determining what needs to be done. But then we bring the hard sciences to bear. My role as the director of excavations is to know enough about all those areas because you know, I've got all these specialists that are giving me data and I've got to then evaluate that data. And um, in that part of the world, the, the Bible is our go-to source. And this is maybe what sets me apart a little bit from many of my colleagues who are great archaeologists in their own right, but they they tend to take the Bible as guilty until proven innocent. Mm. And um, I've never, as an evangelical Christian, I've never seen any reason to do that. I, I find a reliable text and I find verisimilitude or synchronization between the text and the material culture. That's awesome. So you would operate as though the Bible's true, you know, uh, and I think that as believers, we kind of have to operate in that manner. Uh, so I've noticed, maybe uh, maybe you can speak to this, a surge in um, archaeological finds. You hear about them in the news all the time now, or like, I guess on Facebook or whatever, and mm -hmm. I'll see, see some article and it's like, new thing that, you know, proves such and such. So um, it has there been a surge? Uh, why? And should we expect that surge of like these mm -hmm. artifacts to continue to grow in that field? I think several things have converged. We're in what I would call the golden age of archaeology. It's now over 100 years old. We've had access to the remains. I mean, it wasn't until really uh, World War One, and if you're talking about Israel proper, that after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, that there was really direct access to the material culture. And so it was a very young science at the time. And so now that's 100 years old, and who knows what politically the future will bring. So right now we're in a good spot because we we pretty much know what we're doing and we have access to the material we're able to then publish that and to to make it known also media has exploded and so things that maybe were being found 30 years ago the media wasn't in a place to report them with like immediacy like we have today. We have our own news channel at Shiloh, Shiloh Network News, and so everybody's signing in and they're just daily hearing what's going on. Whereas in the past, they would have been waiting until the next annual meeting of the Near East Archaeological Society or something like that. So, you know, there is a lot that's happening. I do, assuming that we have a stable political situation in the Middle East, big assumption, um, I do expect that that, that will continue. I'm curious for your ideas, Dr. <clears throat> Thomas, because I know that you also study old things, but you study dinosaurs, dinosaur tissues. Um, you have your degree in paleobiochemistry. What is your view on archaeology and just the importance of it, how it correlates with scripture and kind of how it relates to your field as well? Yeah, thanks for pulling me in. <laughs> Thus far, I've been on the outskirts of this conversation, <laughs> but I've enjoyed every minute of it because <laughs> I just, I love uh, Dr. Scott and uh, love what he's doing and what he has done and um, so thrilled that he's, he's able to be here which is in part answer to your question. Uh, because what's so thrilling about these archeological finds to me? I mean, w when you see an inscription that has like a name on it, 
And it comes from the time that the Bible has that same name. Does that make any sense? It's, the Bible says mm-hmm. thus and such person or place lived and did their thing at this particular time, according to the Bible's chronology and the details in the text. And then you see an inscription with, with that name. It just mm-hmm. makes the Bible come alive. And I know that that's the rare on the rare side of archaeological finds, but it's there. And it's fantastic. And we do digs. I, you know, I dig dinosaurs. He digs material culture. Mm-hmm. Um, he digs closer to the surface. Uh, but in some places where there were no people, there, you know, we have layers that have um, fossils buried in them. Um, in, in some places, those layers, which are deeply buried in one place, are elevated and they're nearer to the Earth's surface. In other places where, we're, where they're easier to access. So... Um, with archaeology, you're looking at, you know, at, at human remains and human habitations, and you're and you're tying together with human history, and, but that's all um, after the flood. According to the Bible, the the flood restructured the whole Earth's surface. Second Peter three, uh, the world that then existed perished, being overflowed with water. So I'm looking at the world, basically evidence from the flood. And I'm, I'm happy in, and, uh, it's easy to interpret the evidence that I see according to that flood model, because it just fits so well. That's how you get these broad, extensive limestone layers, sandstone layers. They don't happen today. And so it's fun to, to excavate and, and even to look at the, the proteins that are still in those fossils as though they're really young. Mm. Um, and so that's what I like to do. But uh, now in both cases, whether we're looking at something that fits the flood and the timing of that flood, therefore the veracity of Scripture, ultimately, or we're looking at um, post-flood events that also tie in with the veracity of Scripture. Mm. In both ways, we're, we're able to uh, have this, you know, this voice, the same common voice that says, guys, you can trust your Bibles. Mm-hmm. And if you can trust your Bibles about what it says about the history of the world, the flood, the judges, the kings, then, then what's, what's keeping me from trusting everything that's, that's in the Bible? You know, if I could comment on that, Brian, you've got no evidence of a flood in the archaeological record. So I'm often asked that question. Do you have evidence of the flood in the archaeological record? They're looking in the wrong place. Yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> and there's, people are shocked when I say that. Mm. I didn't say anything about the literary account or the geological record. You asked me a specific question. I gave you a specific answer. No. And you, of course, gave us the foundation for that. The cities that we know, the leveling that we know is post-Diluvian. And that comes as a surprise to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were talking about the veracity of Scripture. And and I feel like that is just a huge part Mm -hmm. of both of these sciences is – Strengthening the reliability of scripture. Scott, you were saying that other archaeologists will speak to you and they they have this like uh, guilty until proven innocent when it comes to the Bible. I think that sometimes we as Christians, evangelical Christians, sometimes we look to those scientists and we're like, oh, that's what they're saying. Uh, therefore, we need to like co-opt that into our belief system. So that leads me to like my next subject. And I'd like to hear from both of y'all, both archaeologically and uh, paleobiochemically uh, in that, in that <laughs> same oh, way. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, so there are those who try to make the biblical account fit what we see as opposed to like fitting what we see with the biblical account, if that makes sense. We're like trying to, to mesh these two mm. things together. They're backwards. like, I already have this idea of how old this is, so it's in conflict with the mm. Bible. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how that operates in archaeology? And then mm. uh, Dr. Thomas, will we'll go to you. Well, we, we do have circular reasoning that occurs. And I'll give you an example. Archaeologists typically have been taught that there were no roof tiles in the first century, clay roof tiles. These didn't come about until the second century. Well, the problem with that is you have a verse in the Gospels Mm -hmm. where at Capernaum, the one I mentioned earlier, they broke through the roof and they lowered their friend to Jesus. Well, in Greek, the word is karamas. 
ceramic. It's where we get the word ceramic. They broke through a ceramic roof. Well, if it's a first century document and there aren't ceramic tiles until the second century, you can see what a skeptic would do with that. See, the Bible is anachronistic or it wasn't written until later. Well, we have excavated ceramic tiles from the first century in first century context. And when I went to publish them from our dig at Kerbin and Makater, I was told by a number of people, those have to be out of context because they don't exist in the first century. And I said, no, I assure you, they came from a first century context. There's a first century coin sitting on top of it. There's first century pottery next to it. And it's a sealed locus. I'm quite sure that it's first century. They said, well, no, no, it can't be. They don't exist until the second century. I held my ground. And so our publications have that in them. I found two other publications who also document them. And then I started talking to archaeologists. And they'd all been strong-armed, and they haven't published it in the first century context because they were told it must be out of context. That's circular reasoning. Mm -hmm. It can't exist because they don't exist. Right. And so when we find them, we're supposed to then throw them out. I didn't do that. And so, you know, we, we do encounter that, that sort of locked-in paradigm. I want to be open-minded to whatever I'm seeing too, but I do begin with the, the biblical text and any, any other relevant texts, and, and then the archaeological data comes alongside and illuminates the text for me, whereas you said for a lot of people they may be looking to... I, <laughs> I have colleagues who Abraham's date is always moving. He's in constant fluctuation. You know, I've known these people for years, and they've had Abraham was uh, 2100 B.C., and then he was 1900 B.C., and now they've got him at 1700 B.C., and they're moving him to 1600 B.C. I'm like, this poor guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <we're> lost. <laughs> whereas in my world, he's always been in the same place. Yeah. And so as their understanding of the pottery changes, then the lifetime of Abraham changes. So. Okay. And so from, from my end, oh boy, do I see the same circular mm -hmm. reasoning crop up. In fact, it was that circular reasoning that a friend of mine pointed out to me back when I was a, a, a mainstream thinker and a, a Bible doubter. And, mm -hmm. and he said, well, hey, they, they use circular reasoning when they assign these ages to fossils. And they, you know, they assign the age of the fossil based on the age of the rock mm -hmm. layer, and then they do the reverse. And isn't that circular reasoning? And I said, they don't do that. <laughs> can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. Yeah. And then he said, oh, what do they do? Show show me what they do. You know, do they actually do circular reasoning or not? And he he just kept pounding me with that question, mm -hmm. and I never could find that that's not what they do. So that's what sparked my interest in, um, you know, in apologetics, mm -hmm. and that's what that was really the seed of doubt planted in my faith in mainstream science. Mm -hmm. So I thought, whatever the scientists say. That's the way it is. And if they say that this such and such was laid down in you know, the age of reptiles millions of years ago, then that has to be the fact. If they say I came from an ape, then that has to be a fact. And then I open my Bible, no age of reptiles. I open my Bible, you know, I came from Adam, not from apes. Mm -hmm. And so I had this you know, conflict of, of origins, and I thought, i got to get to the bottom of this. And once I found that there was actual science to, to back up you know, basic pieces of Bible history. Um, for example, there's no undisputed transitional form between apes and man. It's either apes or humans mm -hmm. in the fossils and, and et cetera. So I found that there are scientists who actually believe the Bible straightforwardly and that there's science that backs it up. And now I'm happy to be numbered among them. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about how we get canceled, though, because of these thoughts sometimes. Yes. Um, I, I went through this several instances the last few years, but Wikipedia, for example. Um, Wikipedia, one of our guys was an editor for Wikipedia, the People's Encyclopedia. You know, they want us to all give $5 a year, and it's the People's Encyclopedia. Well, it's for 50% of the people, we found out, because the, my friend who was on the inside was screen capturing everything that they were telling him because he was right doing a Wikipedia page on me. And they kept... Uh, declining it, and he was asking why, and just being very calm about it, capturing screenshots. And finally, the the upper echelon at Wikipedia told him, and he captured the screenshot. We are never doing a Wikipedia page on Stripling. He is a young Earth creationist, and he will never be on Wikipedia. Bam! You know wow. what we always knew was true. You know there was the evidence of it, and so to engage in the arena of ideas, 
with our paleontology, with archaeology, is a contact sport. Have hmm. you guys, because what we're really talking about right now is something that most people would call bias. And it's really just your worldview and how you view things. And a lot of people talk about how science should be completely unbiased. In either of y'all's fields, have you ever met a truly unbiased <laughs> scientist? And so that that gets right at the, the, the heart of the question that Trey just asked. And I had a, just to illustrate how pervasive that bias is. We can't not be biased. <laughs> we can't not be biased because everyone comes at the data with some sort of worldview. Mm -hmm. And so, but that's, so I had a frustrating conversation with some college students a few weeks ago, and I'm trying to tell them, look, there's archeology span with like inscriptions that have the names of mm -hmm. people that are in the Bible and that come from the right time context. And they, they were just shaking their heads like, no, 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 mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you could make, you could make anything that comes out of the ground, meaning anything you want. And it was like talking to a wet, trying to push a wet noodle, you know, it was. <laughs> it's an awesome analogy. Uh, so <laughs> and, uh, anyway, and I just thought what, but it got me thinking, why is it that, that they, that I felt so frustrated, you know, by that conversation. And one of the things that they were saying, this is a, a young couple that I met is, um, science is supposed to be run without bias. And if you come at the data, with a Bible bias, then you are not doing science. Now, when they say that, they're assuming that their anti-Bible bias right, right. is not biased. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, but so what I so how do I get someone in this contact sport? You can't. <laughs> Fight them. What, what do I do? <laughs> do I deck them? Yeah. <laughs> so how do I get someone to uh, to to recognize that they actually are operating with a bias themselves? Mm -hmm. It's just it's just an anti-Bible bias is all it is, and maybe there's no way to do that right. uh, for certain people. Um, mm. But, but uh, that's the that seems to me to be the reality of the situation. So it's kind of like let's let's instead of talking about the the artifact in the ground or the or the bone in the ground, let's let's talk about how we even approach this. Let's talk about logic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And do I have a bias? And let's yeah. ask ourselves: Am I coming at this with the right? Bias, because you can't not be biased. So, mm -hmm. what are my biases? Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe that's intellectually honest with that. Yeah. Right. Well, maybe yeah. you know another word might be presuppositionalism. So, that's a better word. You know, yeah. bias. Sort of, I have an agenda, mm -hmm. and I'm out to prove the Bible, and I'm really not. I mean, I've never thought the Bible needed to be right. proven. Um, archaeology illuminates the text. It doesn't prove it from my perspective. It's illuminating it. It can speak for itself. Right. Mm -hmm. But when we think about presuppositionalism, uh, yes, we do bring presuppositions. This person is presupposing that the Bible is mythology or it's a bunch of eteleological legends. I'm presupposing that it's actual history. Now we let's test our hypotheses. And my personal stature, though, is then I want to be friends with these people. You know, I, I they're not the enemy. Right. You know, I want to build bridges to them, and I do. I have people on my staff who come from, you know, other presuppositional worldviews. And I find that many times by me not alienating them, it's not us against them, that they do open up to these possibilities. Because, you know, some people, maybe a third of people have a proclivity toward unbelief and maybe a third of proclivity toward belief. And there's, there's maybe a third of people in the middle who are persuadable and maybe they've had bad information and we've got a the truth sets people free. That's so we right. replace bad information with the good information. It's yeah. I think that oftentimes, especially in fields like these, maybe there's some pride that gets in the way and it becomes about who's right. As well, there's no, there's no pride. Right. <laughs> I, I never had that. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it's true. And it all, I'm not a scientist and sometimes like I'll be talking to, to, to my friends and, and they're like, Trey, you work for that weird creationist place. I, I don't know if I believe what you're saying. And I'm like, well, you're never going to get a Wikipedia page like that. That's right. right, now, That's right. Okay? So, yeah, th there's definitely some, like, I have to be right to it. And and we have to not approach it like that. We, you know, we're, we're trying to share with them the truth, not, yeah. not prove them wrong. Well, because it's about Jesus Christ, and it's about him being mm. the creator. It's about him being right in what he says in his word. It's not about being right. And sometimes, like, our egos just kind of get in the way on both sides, on mm. all sides. Um, and that does not help our case. Like if we were just to be humble and approach it 
the way it is instead of with some sort of ego getting in the way. I just feel like the message would go mm. a lot further. Not everybody is going to even respond well to that, but at least but there some will. Some, some will. will. Some will. Some will. And it's exciting. And not everyone is against this. They just maybe haven't heard a mm-hmm. uh, coherent worldview presented. Mm-hmm. Like I was lecturing at Hebrew University maybe 10 years ago. And um, I'll never forget, as a, a group of maybe 50 PhD students and, and master's level students. And I talked to them for about 45 minutes, not much differently than the way that we're talking. I had a PowerPoint and I used a few bigger words, but basically I'm talking about Bible and archaeology. And um, afterward, they just lined up to talk to me. It was late at night and they didn't want to leave. They wanted to shake my hand and talk. They said, this is amazing. You're the first one all year to use the Bible in our class. Now, this is Mount Scopus campus of Hebrew University, the conservative university, and they weren't against the Bible. They hadn't even heard it. Mm. By the way, he just, put, he just put the word conservative in air quotes for our, <laughs> for our audio listeners. That's true. That's conservative true. Quote, quote, air quotes. Conservative. Well, it's interesting because we were even at ICR, was at a local university here in North Texas um, recently, and we were just talking with some of the students. We were recording some conversations with scientists and things like that. And one of our scientists asked the students basically what they thought about um, these areas of origins and evolution versus creation. And some of them had thought about it and they were able to have good conversations and everything. I heard a couple others just say, oh, I've never really thought about it before. I don't know. Yeah. And they were so interested in what our scientists, Dr. Thomas was there, and there were a couple others as well. Good they job, were so interested. Yes, <laughs> putting a shameless plug in there. But um, they were just so interested in what our scientists were saying because, like you said, they'd never heard it before. And it was all new and it was kind of exciting because it was something else for them to think about. They had never heard this before. Yeah. So, the late great Dr. John Morris, former president of the Institute for Creation Research, uh, where we are now. Years ago, about a decade ago, uh, here in these offices here in, in Dallas, uh, he he had an office right around the corner from mine, and uh, so we would we would have you know hallway conversations, and it just came up one day. He said that ABR is the ICR of archaeology, so that's Associates for Biblical Research. Okay. Is he he likened it to ICR's approach? So I want to put that to you. Scott, what do you think, how would you speculate what was in his mind when he would make that parallel? Um, Well, that's a blessing to hear. I know that he he was good friends with our founder, David Livingston. Mm -hmm. And so I think they talked on a philosophical level and saw a very similar approach. And now both organizations are more mature and developed from that point, but our basic philosophical approach has not changed. I mean, we see the Bible as a reliable historical source. And so, you know, I catch it from the media all the time about this. You know, they they find it curious. One uh, really a, a, a good news agency in Israel, they, they wrote a good article, but the, the, the way that the reporter worded it was uh, stripling uh, while leading the largest archaeological team in the Middle East lies outside the mainstream of Israeli archaeologists in that he takes the Bible as a serious historical text. And I thought, well, if you're accusing me of, of taking the Bible as a serious historical, yes, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged. Um, so th- those sorts of worldview ideas and how we interface with that, I, I think it's similar to the way that ICR does. And I personally love that. I love this level of engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I do too. And, and we were just talking right before this um, recording about how important it is for, for guys like us to go through the rigorous process of, mm. of mainstream secular peer review um, and speaking of which, what is it that just got published? <laughs> oh, we're back around to that now. Okay. I knew we'd come back full circle. <laughs> well, um, this, this little kind of reminds me of the story when Abraham Lincoln, who was six foot five, met Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was four foot 10. He condescended to her and said, so you're the little lady who started this great big war. Um, speaking about uncle Tom's cabin, of course, mm. um, but anyway, this little bitty tablet seems to have caused a great big stir, and uh, we found this in December of 2019 uh, on an expedition to Mount Ebal. And just to remind everyone, this is ancient Shechem, 
is between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. This is where the Abrahamic covenant was cut at El Amore, just adjacent to it. Moses had instructed the Israelites, when you come back into the land and you gain a foothold, you'll go then with Mount Gerizim on one side, Mount Ebal on the other, with the ark in the middle, he's very specific, to pronounce the blessings from Mount Gerizim and the curses from Mount Ebal in covenant renewal. Now, of course, the covenant they were renewing was the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, as they've, they've come back in. Joshua 8.30 then says they, they did it, and then Joshua 8.30 says that, and Joshua built an altar to the Lord on Mount Ebal, the mountain of the curse. And so Adam Zertal had excavated this and became a believer in the historicity of the text, by the way, by excavating it. He was a, 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 an agnostic from uh, University of Haifa, grew up on a kibbutz, and was not a Bible reader, if you can imagine excavating biblical sites without the Bible. Right. Um, but what he found on Mount Ebal changed him profoundly mm. and had a big shakeup in academia because of it. Well, after his excavation, he indeed did uncover not only one altar on Mount Ebal, but two altars, a large rectangular altar, nine by seven meters, and underneath it at the perfect geometric center was a round two-by-two two altar, which was clearly older. Mm -hmm. uh, like the later altar was protecting and venerating the, the earlier altar. It's that earlier altar that pertains to Joshua ben Nun. And he, like all archaeologists, left behind dump piles. They, now, they, he was doing this in the 70s? 80s. 80s. From 82 to 89. Founded in 80 and then excavated from 82 to 89 and uh, published his preliminary report, but he died before publishing a final report. Mm. We felt like, and some of the, the, the carbon material had gone missing, the scarabs, nobody could find them. And so we had a lot of questions about the chronology. And so it's in a very sensitive area of what's the so-called West Bank or Judea Samaria. And uh, we wanted to go using our new technology of wet sifting that we've perfected. We didn't invent it, but I would say we have perfected wet sifting. And incidentally, I just think it's it's good that believers are leading the way on some technology for a change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've been beating this drum, and this has been a passion of mine. And so I had uh, two test cases. I had Shiloh, old dump piles there from a previous excavation. And then I had the Mount Ebal dump piles, both conquest sites. And I wanted to take those dump piles, the garbage that was left behind. We're not excavating. We're just going through the garbage and wet sift that. And based on my previous experience, I knew what we were going to find. Because for every one scarab that we used to find, we now find five. Mm -hmm. For every one bula, like a clay impression that we used to find, we now find five. And you think that's because of the wet sifting? Oh, I know it is. Yeah. Because we find it in the dump piles. They published one, and I find five in the dump pile. So mm. we're throwing away 80% of the evidence in the past. And that's and, just because it's like encrusted with gunk and junk. And yeah, stuff. I mean, you take a little scarab. It's mm. an Egyptian scarab, but they can be tremendously important because they're datable. And that can enable you to date that stratum covered in dirt, and volunteers see thousands of stones a day, and you know they all start they to just, look the same. They start looking the same. Yeah. But when we wash that matrix, almost like by the washing of the water of the word, when we wash that matrix, it all begins to pop. Then it takes time, it takes money, it slows you down, but it's revolutionary. So, I was planning to write a boring methodological paper. It would be peer reviewed, but nothing very exciting. Just simply saying to my colleagues, we can't keep doing what we what we've been doing. Because, listen, once we got it out of context, it loses its value, right. largely. And so we got to change the way we're doing things. Well, I was expecting to find scarabs and bula. I wasn't expecting to find this lead tablet. And when the lead tablet came to light in our wet sifting, Adam Zertal's team had missed it when they dry sifted. We went back and dry sifted the same stuff again, and we missed it. My team did. Mm -hmm. It was only when we then took it through the wet sifting process that it popped out. And it's about the size of a business card folded in half. And I immediately saw glyptic markings on the outside. And I knew what it was. The, as an archaeologist, I've seen hundreds of these. There, there's a name for them. It's a defixio or a curse tablet. So people wrote curses in the ancient world. And uh, usually they're very petty sorts of curses, like she stole my boyfriend and made her hair fall out or, you know, just sort of <laughs> stupid, petty right. kinds, of, kinds of curses. This was a very serious curse. And um, we ultimately were able to recover text from the inside of the lead tablet. We couldn't unfold it. It was brittle. 
But using tomographic scanning at a lab in Prague, we were able to scan through the lead and recover a text which blew our minds. What did it say? You'd like to know that, Yes, I do. <laughs> well, we just, uh, the, the peer-reviewed publication has just been released in Heritage Science, a very highly rated academic peer-reviewed journal. And so I can now tell you exactly what it says. It's a series of, what's well, really one curse, but it's broken down as a literary chiasm. So you have 48 letters, and the word arur in Hebrew means cursed. And so it says essentially cursed, cursed, cursed. Cursed are you by the God Yahweh, or Yahoo. So here we have the oldest capturing of the name of God by hundreds of years ever found in Israel. Wow. And it dates back to the time of Joshua. And so the idea that there weren't Israelites there at that time, or that they were illiterate. And I mean, we have a lot of people saying that Joshua and Moses were illiterate, even though Jesus says that they weren't. And right. you know, you've got various scriptures, but a lot of people believe that. We have evidence of an alphabetic script, what we would call a proto-alphabetic script that predates Paleo-Hebrew. It's the transitional form where the Egyptian hieroglyphs are morphing into Hebrew letters. And when I saw that script, I couldn't, I'm here in the US, so one of my collaborative members, Peter Vanderveen, was in Germany, Gershon Galil is in, in uh, Israel, and then the, the scientists the, in Prague are giving us this, the scan. So this stuff's flying around the US, and I'm the, on a later time zone than the rest of them. So when I get up early in the morning and turn on my computer, I'm looking at another letter, and it becomes clear, this script dates from the late Bronze Age. Wow. And it blows me away. And so this is the importance of forming a collaborative team. So. And, and one of them is a Christian, the others, I, uh, one, of, one is Jewish, and the others, I don't know what their faith commitments are. But I didn't want it to be like, this is just stripling. Like, you know, right. he's an evangelical. He's wanting to see stuff there, you know, that isn't there. And so this is why we go through that rigorous peer review process. Mm -hmm. And now the scans are out for the world to see. And our reading is, you are cursed by the God, Yahweh. Cursed you will surely die. Cursed you are by Yahweh. Cursed Cursed, cursed. Real encouraging, isn't yeah. it? Carson? That's dark. Yeah, wow. I mean, all my life I wanted to be known for the blessing. And, you know, it co comes out as the curse. But think about what Joshua 8.30 says. He builds an altar to the Lord on Mount Ebal, the mountain of the curse. And go back and read the curses of Deuteronomy 28. And this one tablet summarizes all of those curses. And what do they do with it? they place it on the altar. Mm. And what happens on the altar? The shedding of innocent blood mm -hmm. to cover the guilty. And so the idea is that we are all, and incidentally, the curse is, you're not cursed by Satan. Right. You're cursed by Yahweh. Okay, good luck dealing with that. That's like checkmate. Yeah. Um, the only way that you deal with this is through the blood. Mm -hmm. Leviticus 17, 11. And so the symbolism is, is powerful. So what we talk about in the article is um, on an archaeological level, on a historical level, and then sort of the, the faith implications, all we say in the article, because it's a secular article, is that this may relate directly to the biblical account. And now there will be scores and scores of other articles that will be spun off from this where we'll talk about the types of things we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's incredible. Wow. Thanks for Allowing us to hear that before, you know, before some people it's have groundbreaking. Yeah, by yeah. the time that this comes out, I'm sure it'll be, uh, you know, more. There's, there's more a known. little feeding frenzy going yeah. on. Um, <laughs> and what would you say is the oldest book? I'll just ask the three of you. What would you say is the oldest book in the Hebrew Bible, Isn't along with Genesis? Jo I would say Job. Okay. That's what I've heard. Okay, yeah. well, so, yeah. right. so I, think, I think that's what we would all think is that Job, because there's no mention of the Mosaic Law or anything mm -hmm. in, in Job. All right, well, listen to this verse, Job 19.24. It's right before Job 19.25, obviously, but it's the first mention of resurrection in Job 19.25. But back up one verse, and Job says, Oh, that my words were written on a lead tablet with an iron pen. Do you see how ancient that idea is mm -hmm. back to the late Bronze Age? And that's where our tablet dates to. And incidentally, we know that because of the archaeological context, the epigraphy, the style of writing, and then the lead itself, we're able to chemically test the lead at Hebrew University. And we found that it came from a mine in Lavrion, Greece. 
amazing they can find that out. Yeah, that's yeah, crazy. The chemical wow. signature is fascinating. And here's where it gets really interesting because we know that mine was in use in the late Bronze Age. And we know that imports from, from Greece to Israel or exports, depending on which side you're on, they stopped around 1200. Everyone agrees on that. All archaeologists believe that there was no trade going on after 1200. So if it came from a mine in Greece, it's pre-1200, mm -hmm. which makes it by far the oldest inscription that's ever been found, and it even has the covenant name of God. Wow, wow. that is yeah. an incredible amazing. find. Uh, and also, your just your passion for this is yes, yeah, it's, tangible, it's, it's, yes. it's very clear. Uh, well, when I saw it, we were blown away. Yeah. I mean, the the Frankie Snyder, who's my most experienced wet sifting volunteer, she'd worked for a decade at the Temple Mount Sifting Project, and fortunately or fortuitously, it was in her tray. And she called me over and said, Scott, you better come see this. Mm -hmm. She knew what it was, too. And then I called Abigail over, who was my assistant director. And Abigail said, her eyes bugged out. The three of us just looked at each other like, you've got to be kidding me. A cursed tablet from the mountain of the curse. And then to recover text from the inside mm -hmm. was just, just phenomenal. Wow. I'm thinking it's, to this point, it's the find of your life. And it may end up being the find of your lifetime. Uh, and so can you draw out maybe another implication of, of that find? If you were to say to someone, here's what I want you to remember about me as it relates to this find, like what would that message, what would you like that person to hear? Well, let me apply it back to what we were talking about, which was presuppositions and paradigms. We have something called the documentary hypothesis that unfortunately we have generations of Christian leaders who have been trained in this ideology of the documentary hypothesis coming from Wellhausen. Um, what it says essentially is that the Bible is written in four stages. So you have a J source, an E source, a P source, and a D source, and they're hundreds of years apart. So the J is the Jehovah source, the E is the Elohim source. They're hundreds of years apart. They don't exist together, and the whole Bible is then redacted, or the Hebrew Bible at least, in the Persian or Hellenistic period. So a thousand years after the events that it purports to be giving an eyewitness to. Well, guess what? Not only do you have the name Yahweh, or it's yod heh -Vav, so it's a three-letter spelling, which is the more archaic spelling, um, so you'd pronounce it Yahu, but I'll say Yahweh. The word right next to it, cursed are you by the God Yahweh, that's El. El Yahu are side by side. So much for the documentary hypothesis. Right. It can it can no longer exist as a viable system because the whole basis of it is separating El from Yahweh. So th to me, that's huge. And yeah. establishing early literacy is huge. I mean, the Bible says that Moses wrote, that Joshua wrote, now we've got writing possibly even in the hand of Joshua ben Nun or in the scribe of Joshua ben Nun. And I just have to tell you, when I sat there, you know, the, the, the round altar, and I could see the top of it, and I sat there, I just had this profound sense that we were in the middle of something that was historical, mm -hmm. important, and um, not overly emotional person, but I just had the sense of the... Of, of destiny and what we were doing. And sure enough, this tablet came from mm. it. Well, praise the Lord. Yeah, Praise the Lord. Thank really you for telling incredible. us about it. Yeah. I feel like maybe he he unfolds and, and allows allows us to find certain yeah. things at, at certain times because he has someone in mind. And it may be a listener to us now mm. yeah. who's listening to this going, yeah, the Bible, you know, everyone knows it's full of holes and it's just, mm. you know, it's just a bunch of myths. But now they're thinking, wait a minute, well, that's what Adam Zertal thought mm. until he till he did the excavation at Mount Ival. And now what do we find? Had Adam Zertal found this tablet, by the way, he wouldn't have been able to do anything with it. Mm. There was no tomographic scanning in the 1980s. And so what an interesting day we live in mm. yeah. with our technology that we're able to take something like wet sifting, which was cutting edge, tomographic scanning, which was cutting edge, and then bring something, things that were very ancient, the material culture, the biblical text, Bring them both together. Like I think of what Jesus said, a scribe of the kingdom draws out of his treasures things both old and new. And so when those two come together, we really get something phenomenal. Okay, yeah. I'm curious, because kind of with all of that, we've talked a lot about why this is important, why archaeology is important, um, why the process is showing that scripture really is true and what it says. I'm curious, you keep talking about um, wet sifting 
and how technologies are coming up all the time. What does the process look like now? And Dr. Thomas, feel free to pitch in too, because I know that you're familiar with the um, paleontology type process. So I know there's some similarities sometimes, but I'm just curious, what does your process look like? Like for instance, when you were there with these altars and sifting through all of this, like what are some of your methodologies with all of that? Okay, so Mountie Ball is a little different from what we normally do. So I'll just tell you our normal protocols. Okay. Mm -hmm. We have a grid and five by five meter squares within that grid that's alphanumeric so that we can track where everything's coming from. And the, so we're constantly taking levels of everything that we're excavating. We're taking soil samples so that we can test those soil samples. We're looking for a change in color and texture and anything like that as, as we're going down. We're doing flotation on the soil. And listen, we excavate 2,000 pieces of pottery a day. Okay. Wow. Every that's, day. That's wow. huge. <laughs> uh, glass and coins and, and bula and walls and bone, animal bones and human bones. And so like everything you have in your house, they had in theirs, yeah. except the electronics. <laughs> and so they may be broken, but uh, we're, we're taking all of that and then we're trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And we understand what the pottery looked like in this time period, how they built walls in a different time period. And so all of that comes to bear. Now, I would say paleontology in a dig is not as complex because you know you're 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 trying to recover the bones and you know the soil may be tested and so forth along with it whereas we have hundreds of material things that we're cataloging because we never know later one of those things might be really important yeah for example um, little sandal tacks tiny little tacks we have a metal detectorist all day long she's running a metal detector and we're, we're sifting and then wet sifting and all this. And my team, it drives them crazy because we save all these little tacks and it slows them down. They have to take measurements. And, and just to clarify, that's how they used to make, put their shoes together, right? Like little During the New Testament or Roman yeah, period, okay. let's say. Okay. So they've got leather soles and these little tacks. There's even a name for them. They're called Caligule. Uh, like the Emperor Caligula's nickname was Little Boot. And so these, <gasps> these tiny little nails are called Caligule. And there's a unique type of military tack. Just like mil our military today, there's accoutrements that are unique to the military mm -hmm. that an expert would know about, that a civilian wouldn't know whether it's military or civilian. Mm -hmm. Well, so we saved all of these, which meant we had to record them. They go into our system. It takes time and effort and money. Well, it turns out they were very important because they were military tacks which proved that our site had been destroyed by the Romans mm -hmm. during the Great Revolt. Just wow. as I had theorized, it became another line of evidence mm -hmm. that Roman military had been present at, at the site. So we try to save everything, even if it seems insignificant at the time. The last step in our protocols, after we've excavated, after we've dry sifted, then we take that matrix, it's color-coded by square, and we know the locus and the pale that it came from, and it goes down to our state-of-the-art wet sifting station. We've got our own water tower and, you know, it's quite a complex that's going. We wash that matrix and then anything of archaeological value is taken back to the square supervisor and added to the material from that, from that level. Now, at Mount Ebal, it had already been excavated. And so all we were doing was merely going back through and dry sifting and then wet sifting because there was no context. Digging to through it. the trash. Digging through the trash. <laughs> uh -huh. Now you might wonder, well, then how do we know that it's from this time period if it didn't have context? There's only two strata at Mount Ball. There was late Bronze Age two and there was Iron Age one. So there were only two choices. Gotcha. Either way, it was older than any previous inscription that we had. But we're confident, as we presented in the article, that it's late bronze too from the style of the text. Right. Like if you took Chaucer's English and you read it today, you would still kind of understand it, but a lot of it might seem awkward to you or maybe you wouldn't get a few words. Same thing with proto-alphabetic script as opposed to Paleo-Hebrew script. It's a clearly different script. Gotcha. All she asked was, What's it look like? What do you do? And you, you went on and on. And all you had to say was, we give the trash a bath. That's right. <laughs> Done. Boom. Just spray it off with the hose for a little bit. <laughs> play, in, play in the water. Yeah. yeah. Play, play in the mud. Yeah. Yeah. But well, listening to that, uh, yeah, that's more rigorous than, yeah. than the digs I've, I've been on. And so now you know why I went into paleontology instead. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I may come and give this, give this a try. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like We've talked about some really exciting finds that have happened recently, including this epic find of that lead tablet and everything like that. 
but you do not strike me as someone to say, okay, now I've reached the pinnacle. I'm going to step back now. <laughs> I suspect you're already thinking about your yeah. next journey, your mm -hmm. next project. What are you excited to see in the future in this field? Well, no, I'm I'm not at all ready to, to, to step back. What I guess one of the things that's really exciting to me is my students, training them. And I've got this army of students who are, people think they got trouble with me. Wait until they get my students. I mean, these guys are guys and gals are going to rock the world. And so they're empowered with biblical training, with uh, archaeological training, and through our protocols, and now they have field experience, and they're going to just do phenomenal things. So that's super exciting to me is to continue to develop um, our students, okay, for yeah. the next generation. But uh, I myself am not done. Um, got a lot more of work that I want to do at Shiloh. We are on the verge of revealing the tabernacle platform at Shiloh. And we have a platform, I'll know for sure after this summer's excavation, but we have a platform that appears to be to match the dimensions given in the Bible for the tabernacle. It's two-to-one ratios of holy to most holy space. It's east-west. We have a demolished four-horned altar next to it, ceramic palm granites, and this bone deposit that I was talking about due east of it. And so you've got all of all the things the that you... And storage rooms immediately adjacent to it as well, like where tithes would be stored and so forth. So... That's expect to hear a lot more about that the next okay. few years. That's on our radar. And I've got several more years of work to do at Shiloh. And then I've got one more conquest site that I've got my eyes on that okay. uh, that uh, when we finish at Shiloh, we're probably going to tackle. And you're not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. You guys okay. keep some suspense, Trey. <laughs> keep, keep some <laughs> secrets there, I guess. Yeah. He's going to keep that in his backyard. Yeah, He's told us a lot. <laughs> I was going to go out there and do it myself. Well, <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, I can be bought off. If someone wants to write a check, I'll tell them what it is because these things are never cheap. Yeah. You, know? uh, well, awesome. you mentioned students. Tell us about your school. So my school is called the Bible Seminary, and we're located in Katy, which is southwest Houston. And we have um, five master's degrees, uh, an MDiv, and then four MAs. One is an archaeological degree, biblical history and archaeology. So if someone's interested in studying that, uh, go to our website, thebibleseminary.edu, and they can uh, study uh, under my leadership. I, I get very personally involved with our archaeology students, and then they work with me in the field. It's kind of like we study theory during the year, and then we go into the field in the summer. And so it's really a dynamic That's thing. That's the best way to learn. And, yeah. you know, it's about 50% male, 50% female, by the way. You know, sometimes people think, well, it's a male field or something. No, maybe it used to be, but, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty evenly split uh, between male and female. Um, and then I'm also the president of the Near East Archaeological Society, so I would invite anyone who's interested in learning more about this to join NEAS. Just go to neasociety.org, and it's very inexpensive to join, and they can kind of get conservative scholarship going through a peer review process that we're putting out there, similar to what you guys are doing, but right. more from an archaeological uh, perspective. And then, of course, the Associates for Biblical Research um, is our parent organization, which is a consortium of universities. Like this summer, we have 16 universities going with us into the field. So ABR is that consortium under which everybody's able to participate. And uh, that website is digshiloh.org. And we will have all those in the descriptions and in the notes so that uh, you don't have to remember all that to our viewers <laughs> and listeners. So awesome. Well, uh, I, I just, it's been awesome being here and just like seeing your passion and hearing the two of y'all talk. Uh, I just want to know, do y'all have any closing thoughts for our viewers and listeners, uh, whether in regard to archaeology or in regard to paleobiochemistry uh, and the future uh, in, in both of these? Mm. Let me do my closing thought Please. first, and then you get the last, last, the best. <laughs> Save the best for last. So what he meant to say was. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the upshot of all this in my little mind is um, for those of us who have been just simply opening our Bibles, reading what it says, and believing it, way to go. But we live in a world, and and and... But I meet so many folks who do that, and that's where it stops. Mm -hmm. And that's where I want to encourage listeners. You have a, you have a, a friend. You, you know, you have a family member. You have a professor. You have, if you haven't met him yet, then you're in a closet somewhere because you have someone who, who opens the Bible, looks at it, and goes, Phew, and scoffs. And so there, I just 
you know, I just want our listeners to be encouraged that there's no good reason to scoff. There's no, there, and, and, and people like Dr. Scott Stripling here are removing those reasons, just simply not by manufacturing evidence, but by uncovering what's already there. And, you know, so it, if you've been reading your Bible, believing what it says, that's the heart that God's looking for. Isaiah 66. He's looking around, looking for someone who trembles at my word and fear him and fear his word. And we have more reasons now because of what we're uncovering to do exactly that. More reasons now to look at his word and just take it for what it says. Mm. And when we do that, that's how we actually learn about the truth of our sin and, and the truth of, of, of you know, the Lord sending his son as a sin sacrifice to, to bring us back together. And that's, that's really a big message of the Bible is how, why did God make this world and put us in it? And why did he let us mess it all up? Well, he's got something in mind and he's got a future in mind and he's got us in mind. But the only way to know and to know him uh, is, is through that Bible, that very Bible that people are so adamant against because it calls out our sin is the real reason. Uh, that, that very Bible is the same one that, that our sciences, our soft sciences here, uh, um, support and, and, and enlighten and challenge us with, okay, take this at his word, take God at his word. Mm-hmm. You can do it. It's easier to do it now because of these sciences. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What about you, Dr. Stripling? Any, any other thoughts? If, if the Bible is true, then I think that means there's a God of the Bible and that God holds a moral claim on our lives. That's not a message that, you know, in a world where we hear all about living my truth, you know, you live your truth, I live my truth, as if there are many truths. Um, it's not always a, a popular message, but it's a powerful message. It's a transformational message. Um I guess I would like people to know that God loves them, that he cares about them. He has a plan for their lives and that if they'll read the Bible critically, but also not negatively, but I mean with an open with critical brain, mind yeah. and look at the evidence that's coming forth. And if they read other other scholars from the left, that's fine, but read the other side too. And I'm very comfortable engaging in the arena of ideas because I think truth always prevails. Um, in archaeology, we have the benefit of dealing with human remains. Easter just passed behind us, and it's been in my thoughts. Like, as an archaeologist, I could we know quite a bit about crucifixion because we've excavated crucifixion victims with nails still in them. And so, you know, we, we have, like, first century dice. We know what the soldiers would have been using in gambling and the types of clasp and toga pins that would have been used on Jesus' garment. Uh, we know the type of clothing that was used. We've excavated just countless human skeletal remains. And so we know kind of what their their pathologies were, typically at the time of death, of the condition of their teeth and size of the average person. So all that's super interesting to me. But I, I guess I could prove, and I've written about this, um, that Jesus really existed. I don't think any serious person today believes there wasn't a historical Jesus. I could prove to you that he lived, when he died, where he died, and how he died. But what I cannot prove to you is that he died in your place. You know, that, that's a matter of faith. That's a work of the Spirit. And so when, when we bring the evidence to bear, or to put it this way, I guess, archaeology can bring someone to the cross, but it can't make them believe that he died in their place. Right. Right. And so we're, we're bringing a conversation to bear, and then... We, we trust that God's spirit will bring people to faith mm. through that process. So when it's all said and done I, and I'm gone, I just want to, I want to know that I was faithful with the evidence. I didn't manipulate it. I didn't spin it. I, I gave, gave accurate information to the next generation to, to deal with. Um, and if, if I'm able to accomplish that, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Thank you all so much for being here with us today. It's uh, been an honor and a privilege and honestly just fascinating to listen to y'all. Uh, it's, it's, it's been great. So thank you all. And to all of our viewers and listeners, thank you so much for watching and listening. Uh, make sure to like, subscribe, share, 
this is a fascinating topic and I'm sure you have had questions about this and maybe others that you know have questions about this. Uh, you know, send them this video uh, and we can maybe point them into uh, a direction that they may not have expected to look. So, uh, and we'll see you next time on creation.live.